Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a movie this week. We are covering Netflix's The Woman in the Window. It released May 14th, and it erupted into a flurry of backlash. Hate. Uh, if you haven't heard anything about it, this is uh, the story. It stars Amy Adams, an agoraphobic woman living alone in New York, begins spying on her new neighbors only to witness a disturbing act of violence. People were expecting a, a lot from this, and I'm excited to uncover the book. Uh, yes. But up front, we wanted to pause and say that this is a thriller. It hinges on a plot twist. So typically we dance around, you know, the, the things that spoil it, but that's going to be inherent in this episode. And, and this in particular uses subjects of mental illness and suicide. So if that is a, a trigger for you, just be uh, forewarned that we will be talking about those, those things. Um, but yeah, so this was written by Tracy Letts, which I'm really excited about, which he's also in. He's been in a bunch of stuff lately. He's a great playwright. Pulitzer Prize winning. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. I love him. Uh, amazing cast. And Joe Wright, the director of Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. So everybody was expecting this to be like a Popping big runner for Best Picture. And it is getting trashed. And I'm, I'm a bit puzzled because I didn't hate the movie. <laughs> I didn't yeah. love the movie, but I didn't hate the movie. I'm really interested to uncover the book because I knew nothing about the book whatsoever. So well, let's, Taylor, yeah. let's start let's with start, the, let's start peeling back this onion. <laughs> some context. It definitely channels Alfred Hitchcock in terms of film, the references, the spiraling staircase, like in Vertigo. She's literally got a camera lens on the window, like in it's rear window. Absolutely. Uh, you know, obviously rear window, uh, yeah. which is, seems to have its own subgenre of films, <laughs> right. endless films about the person in their home witnessing something across you know, the way, the, across yeah. the way that did or didn't happen. Uh, so great trope. I'm amazed we haven't really done one like this. So why not? This <laughs> well, here one? it is. Yeah, because <laughs> rear window came out in 1954, Alfred Hitchcock, based on the 1942 short story, It Had to Be Murder. Touches. It had to be murder. <laughs> I mean, what else? <laughs> I love old titles. <laughs> I love yeah. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. old. Uh, <laughs> I, there, I, there's something to it that we lost. Well, speaking to that, there's touches of comedy and romance that relieve the tension. It's Alfred Hitchcock at his finest. Mm. Disturbia came out in 2007 as a modern retelling with Shia LaBeouf. Boof. There was a bunch of court cases on that because they said, oh, this is copyright infringement, etc. Really? I did not know that. I did not know that that was litigated. Wow. Well, it was thrown out because they said the differences are too distinct to be enforceable. You nice. know, it almost has to be plagiarism at a certain point because right. Right. thrillers, like you said, you can't really do an idea. Or I saw a like thing in my home that con that's this would really broad, you know, <laughs> it's two yeah. hours we got to fill. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, like you said, directed by Joe Wright, is this Oscar work for Amy Adams? She has one of the worst Academy luck of all time. Six nominations without a win. She's the Gosh. third most losingest person. She's the uh, new DiCaprio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he had to eat a raw bison liver. You know, he really put himself. He had to out wrestle there. a real bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real. <laughs> yeah. Glenn Close has eight. She's in the top. What's that? I said he died. Yeah, he <laughs> died. For the, uh, yeah, but Glenn uh, Close. She has eight. So, and it was funny that her and Amy Adams were in Hillbilly Elegy, trying nominated. That was another one that's like Glenn Close hasn't won. No. Oh my gosh. She has the record for the most 
Oh my gosh. Us. Yeah. It's incredible. So, <laughs> so like you said, it seems like, oh, this is primed. Great actors looking for awards, great director, won awards, written by Tracy Letts. The screenplay, you know? The, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so and, and it comes from a book, highly regarded. Massive, yeah. This, however, is Tracy Letts' first adaptation. I found an interview with him. He said, quote, it kind of sucked. It was really hard. It took a long time. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. I love that. And he's a playwright. And we've seen that often where plays are different than movies. Yeah. But he said in this interview, he was like, we wrote, shot the film. We're all pleased with it. And they showed it to an audience and they didn't like it at all. (laughs) And so then they had to do rewrites. Unanimous. Yeah. Yeah. Rewrites, reshoots. I kind of tried to find like, well, what changed? Yeah. What was so unlikable? And yeah. Joe Wright- I bet, has, And yeah. I bet that there are gonna, there's going to be more to come on that story, probably direct from more sources as the fallout from this continues. <laughs> right. Because, they're going to blame X yeah. Studio X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Joe Wright was saying, he was like, he thinks the audience saw the plot points as too opaque or too confusing and had to clarify- in the new thing without oversimplifying and making it too clear because it is a genre piece. Mm -hmm. So that's what the book did really well. It's snappy. It's crazy. It's, you know, fast moving. Whereas I think maybe they tried to do too much artsy abstract Uh stuff. But you had said before we talked that you were like, well, that was kind of the parts that shone through was that, Oh, this is something. Because I don't know. I'm waiting because I I feel like I'm missing out. And and you told me not to look into and you told me in particular (laughs) this week not to look into the author of the book. So I think I'm really missing the uh, half of the conversation here because I came away from the movie not hating it, understanding tonally how unbalanced it could be and how aggressive it is, particularly in its editing, Mm -hmm. Uh, like blood just getting splattered across the screen like a uh, PowerPoint gif, (laughs) Uh, you know, to make a point. This movie dabbles far into the surreal, right, in her dream sequences being on drugs and the trauma, the past, yeah. They just do things that are just unsettling because guess what? It's supposed to be unsettling. (laughs) I'm not saying that that they're great. I'm not saying that they... Right, but right. I am saying that they're, I think they are really trying and grasping mm-hmm. at real ideas instead of, you know, trying something that will get a reaction. And here we are talking about it. People are having a huge reaction to it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that is art. And sometimes making these things is a bit more like throwing paint on the wall. So <laughs> right. I've seen this before and it didn't seem that it fell crazy far from the mark. I'm not saying I didn't love it. I'm not someone I'm a, no. But I'm missing what yeah. people are are up in arms about. So maybe it's the hodgepodge, like I said, about how the fact that they showed this to an audience in a certain state, because who knows? It's not, like you said, it's not like these people are trying to make something horrible. In right. fact, they're trying to make something really good. Right. Uh, but <laughs> maybe like, this they, is not for lack of trying. This yeah. is not lazy. Uh, I think this is a case of trying too hard. It's, it's like, yeah. you know, poor Spider-Man 3. I use it yeah. as an example all the time. It's just, you know, you try really hard and sometimes it just it just isn't great and it's yeah. uneven and if it's uncomfortable and it oh, that didn't work like you thought it would and it's scattered and it's yeah. just jam-packed. So, and this is a, yeah. one of those cases, I think. But I'm I'm still I'm 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 with bated breath, Taylor, and waiting to hear what's up with the novel. As I was looking into this, in a bizarre way, this has way more to do with the writer, and to me is more of an interesting story than that of the film. And the book came out in 2018. And if you followed the book and love the book, you will have known about this from 2019. But all of this was news to me. I've never heard not, of it. <laughs> not knowing I've anything about this author and yeah. So 
We're just going to jump into his personal life, as we often do, talking about where he comes from, his influences, all that stuff, and let the story unfold. The book is written by A.J. Finn, which is a pseudonym for Daniel Mallory, a first-time novelist, and I'll explain why he uses a pseudonym. Majored in literature at Duke University, got his master's and doctorate at Oxford, so he knows the literary world, focusing on Patricia Highsmith, who is a famous thriller crime author. She wrote the Tom Ripley novels, okay. The Talented Mr. Ripley, yeah. that kind of thing. He, th- that's what he wrote his thesis on. So he knows all this kind of stuff. Gotcha. Okay. Worked at a publishing company in London after doing school there, and then became a senior editor at a publishing company in New York. And that's where he wrote The Woman in the Window, took one year to write it, but disclosed to no one that he was doing it. Hmm. This happened in 2016. The book came out in 2018 because he didn't want people to know if he's in the business, there'd be some sort of backlash to him being an editor writing. Yeah. His influence, he said he was watching Rear Window and got inspired, loved, like I said, these psychological thrillers as a kid. Serial killers had been in, in the novel game since Silence of the Lambs. This is all making sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Gone Girl really pushed it back the other way around because there was a string of thrillers in the 2010s about an unreliable female perspective, you know, seeing the girl on the train, the woman in cabin 10 or whatever it is like. There was a lot (laughs) that was coming out. Was it, you know, and I don't don't know if there'll be a more, one of my favorites in this subgenre is called Secret Window with Johnny Depp. Have you never heard of this? I've one? heard of it, but uh, I no, don't know it. This yeah. this is a writer. This might even be a Stephen King thing. Now that I'm thinking about, <laughs> oh god, uh, but it's a writer uh, who's going through a divorce, who's getting accused of plagiarism. Like a guy, or like a like a guy just shows up on his porch and right. accuses him of stealing a story, and then starts terrorizing his wife as they're getting a divorce, and it escalates from there. But it's very much in this in this tone of unreliable narrator. I've been in my house. I'm being stalked. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I saw yeah. something outside. But that's that's another one in this moment. And, but yeah, I, I think of this as all encompassing. But I, I now that I'm thinking about it, there's a '90s Sigourney Weaver film that is about an agoraphobic who's trying yeah. to catch a serial killer, much like much like the almost the Alex Cross movies, like Kiss the Girls mm-hmm. or uh, you know Along Came a Spider. Yeah, it's yeah. in that vein. I can't remember the title of it now. It's driving me crazy. But you know, I have it here. It, so maybe this is yeah, yeah. This is interesting. It is primarily a woman genre, isn't it? So that is a 1995 thriller film it's called copycat copycat no it's and like, uh serial killer yeah <laughs> she becomes an agoraphobic put a pin in that for a second because okay. he's writing this it like you're saying in the zeitgeist explodes into success he actually sold it to the publisher he was working for who did not know it was him being aj he sold Finn. it to him with a mask on <laughs> yeah haha <laughs> seven figure auction for the book film rights already sold to fox stephen king yes. put a blurb on it Open number one on the New York Times bestsellers list was the first debut novel in 12 years to do that. And I'll post an interview with him on the Australian news where he's talking about all this success. Seems amazing, gregarious, kind of arrogant at times. Like just Mm. where in the world is he coming out of? This is sort of where things start to unravel. And you talked about, oh, this kind of feels like this is in this world of things (laughs) that are very similar in plot such as no, the film no. Copycat, which is the irony that that's the title of that film. Wait, so everything you've described thus far, like sounds, because we've covered countless of authors that, yeah. have, you know, sold their things and made their things and we're covering them now. You've traced over a gloss over of that. Yeah, <laughs> that story. 
I'm terrified now, Taylor. Well, hold on to Are your you boots, giving yeah. us the anti? <laughs> well, here. <laughs> oh, no. You're a smart man. Hold on. Uh, strap in for the ride here. Once this book came out in 2018, The Woman in the Window, astute readers noticed there was another novel that had come out in March of 2016. was not nothing. A bestseller on Amazon, 120,000 copies, called Saving April by this right. gal, Sarah Denzel. Again, talking about copyright and intellectual property, both feature anxiety-ridden middle-aged female narrators afraid to leave their homes. They witness something suspicious, spying on the neighbors. But the problem is they have nearly identical plot twists. And here's the spoiler stuff. There's an unhappy married couple with an adopted teenage child across the way. Both birth mothers are neglectful, except one is a boy and one is a girl. It's a girl in the other book. The narrators are racked with guilt over a car crash that killed their family. Police discount their accounts. The teenager is a manipulative psychopath and attempts to kill the woman across wow. the way. I'll post a link. There is an exhaustive list of similarities in plot going through oh, wow. both of them. And so astute readers were like, hey, this, barring the writing quality or whatever you think about that, it's like, this is uh, pretty much copying here. Sarah never took action, though, because again, it's too thin, even with all of that, to support an infringement claim, because these are often also tropes, yeah, really of, hard. tropes of thrillers. Right. So that's kind of a... Uh, a chink in the armor here. Is this really the most amazing thing we've ever seen before from a debut author listed on the New York Times? The big problem that comes out after this, a year later in 2019, a journalist oh, no. had been digging and doing more research. They're making this movie. <laughs> <laughs> a, uh, oh, God. <laughs> an, article, an article came out in the New Yorker it's almost like a mini book, so I'll spare you the details. I read it. It's over an hour long if you wanted to read the whole article. Oh, my gosh. This journalist detailed copious research that A.J. Finn had been fabricating the entire story of his life, oh my like gosh. how his character doesn't know what's real, like he's actually living it, this guy, Daniel Mallory. A lot of it related to deception in terms of securing people's sympathies. And then that affects his career and his personal relationships. A lot of what he claims about his life is not real. And then interviewing former colleagues, they said he's clever, careful. And then they even use the term ruthless deceptions. Whoa. Like this person on the inside is not the bubbly, gregarious, confident person. He's calculated. On, yeah. the, on the talk shows. Huh. The reporter called an editor to discuss that had worked with Mallory. And the editor said, my God with a laugh. I knew I'd get this call. I didn't know if it would be you or the FBI. <gasps> like they knew <laughs> working oh with this God. person that it was just a matter of time before what in the world he was actually doing was oh going to get found out. So thus becomes <laughs> the story of his deception. So he, okay. Everything so I told was you was not true. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I was like, so who is he? <laughs> yeah. I told you just to make sense of it. I told you sure, everything he, he said. told me what he told them. <laughs> yeah. I've, we've yeah. all been the audience. We've all been through it now. We've all been abused yeah. <laughs> by <Yes>. Mallory. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, here we go. <laughs> Deception. Well, and I just wanted to bring you along in my research and being like, oh, no, of God, course. Yeah. It's the only way to, to now to I, feel I understand. It, yeah. Now, now, of course, the, yeah. who is this man? Yeah. <laughs> so on his application for his Oxford doctorate, he had said that during his master's work, he had to care for his mother in the States and he did leave school for a time during his master's. This is like, hey, uh, you know, let me into the doctorate program. His brother had committed suicide during that time 
when he was caring mm. for his mother, and he had also gotten a brain tumor, but didn't want to tell his family. His mother oh, had gosh. died of cancer, so he never got to tell her this. Just this reporter doing any amount of research, his mom is alive, has been married to her husband for over 40 years. His brother did not commit suicide, and he has no history of any cancer himself. And when telling the professor that approved him for this doctorate, the professor was shocked to learn this that all of this was actually a lie that got him into the doctoral program. Oh my God. So where this starts, he wrote a piece in college in the Duke Chronicle about living in a single parent household. And it was sort of a, I don't know if it was a jaded thing, but it was how Princeton denied him from acceptance when he wrote about his mother's cancer. And his mother did have cancer, but like I said, she's been married to her husband for over 40 years. So Hmm. kind of the seeds of like figuring out how to use sympathy to his advantage for his life situation. And then just general lies sprinkled throughout. He said in an interview about Woman in the Window, he said he accidentally locked himself in a bathroom for 22 hours, had to break off the doorknob with a towel ring because they were asking about his influence for agoraphobia and that he's saying, oh, this experience contributed to my fascination. Oh my God. But then never mentions this again in another interview at all. And you can see like He's sort of opportunistic in taking something and running with it yeah, or expanding it. Because if that was your inspiration, you would say that every single interview. Right. But it's pieces that he expands on and goes over over the edge and then either forgets that he said that or it doesn't fit into what he needs to say at the other time. Oh, my God. So there was a, a scholar that taught him for his master's at Oxford, which he did go through with. And this person remembers him going back and forth to the United States because he told him that his mother did die and said, oh yeah, I remember him. I respect his restraint and hard work. So there's even people in the past picking up the pieces that still were like, oh yeah, I didn't know that that wasn't true. Like that he just said it and then left. So he got an assistant job in New York with a publisher. And he said he loved women's fiction, reading to his mom when she had cancer. Mm. And he adds on, he had brain cancer himself once. Mm. And I don't know why he added this, you know, but that that becomes this part of the fiction in his first job. He goes back to Oxford to do his doctorate. And like I said, this is where he makes up the culmination of lies with his brother committing suicide, his mom dying, all of that stuff, and starts doing his doctorate back in England midway through 2009 which he's only gone two years through a four-year degree, he starts signing his emails, Dr. Daniel Mallory, as if he's completed. And Oxford confirmed to this reporter that he did never complete it. He never wrote his thesis on Patricia Highsmith, Mr. Ripley, but obviously he's fascinated by the concept. Right. If he's willing to tell people that he did his thesis on- He wished he did. A psychopathic (laughs) con man. And again, the reporter telling teachers, and they thought still that his illness had interrupted his studies, and that's why he was going back and forth as well, or why he was not there at times, because they thought he had had a brain tumor as well. He gets a job in London, like I said, not not completing it, but signing his emails doctor, saying he was a former editor, even though he was only an assistant in New York, and that he had two PhDs, one at Oxford and one at an American university. You know, fake it till you make it, baby. <laughs> and you got to put this. yourself out there. Yeah. Lean in. You're like, why would Lean anybody in. think that this person has two PhDs? But the colleagues of <laughs> the London place said the hiring was kind of based on, you know. Suit doesn't fit him. It's like, right. <laughs> yes, I'm shaking hands. <laughs> well, that's the power of charisma because they're like, they're hiring based on, yeah. oh, we like the cut of his jib, his personality. 
And that's the whole thing. He has this swagger, flattery. He's confident of his physicality. He's a good-looking guy. He says he modeled mm. for guest jeans. He appeared in Russian Vogue almost. He says a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another colleague said in a quote, he was not modest ever. <laughs> but here comes the, the big part of the illness. He had made known by mm. 2010 that he had an inoperable brain tumor and it would kill him by 40 and he's seeking experimental treatments and is mm. taking time off. And this starts this habit of being gone for procedures for this problem. And so, of course, there's get well balloons at his desk. People are concerned. He said he went to an assisted death nonprofit in Switzerland. But then the reporter asked the place and they say they don't show it to future patients. Like, that's not a thing. He left that London publisher. There was an NDA. So, you know, the company cannot speak to it. But he wasn't fired. But the thing that had happened was... He had gotten a raise based on a competing offer that he said he had gotten, but they found out by talking to the other company that they had never offered him that. So he had been kind of found out as a habitual liar by the company, but many people in the company did not know this. There was a party for him leaving. All all that to say, in terms of the work, like he's good at his job. He's getting books published. He knows marketing and branding and the publishing industry, but the people working around him what more can you say? Like they are hurt by the fact that, oh, this person is just not telling the truth to gain sympathy, gain career advantages. I know this is a deep well, but we got to keep going. Um, Oh, load me up. (laughs) This is what I'm here for. We've never done anything like this before. So this is kind of incredible. This is the anti-author, you know, the closest thing I can think of that we've done to this is like JT Leroy. Yeah. It's like, and I'm not going to compare, you know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is, this is fascinating. I'm also like getting, you know, catch me if you can, Frank Abagnale, Vons. Yeah. I, I know it's bit now there's, if anybody remembers <laughs> uh, the Frank Abagnale, catch me if you can story, the Sp- Steven Spielberg movie, there's now a, na- a challenging narrative to that story. Yeah, that and so I don't know what to believe. Himself. And it sounds just like this. So yeah, I'm just yeah. like, I don't know what to believe anymore. If it's too good to be true is I don't. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, exactly. You know. So the the London job he leaves becomes an executive editor in New York, probably earning $200,000 a year. And in London, the colleagues were saying he seemed like an American satire of an American person <laughs> in England. But then so, in New York- Somebody talked to my twin. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my London twin. But in, in New York, he came off as British. He spoke with an accent for a time, said things were brilliant, bloody, where's the loo? The habit lasted for years. Oh my God. Almost a compulsion. And even in the book, Woman in the Window- I'm getting annoyed now. Yeah. <laughs> it's written as <laughs> written as a, a postman, not a mailman. Like You can even hear some Britishisms in his interviews, uh, even though he drops the accent. His gone from the office for problems reappears in the New York office. Two emails go out after he stopped coming into the office from his brother, Jake. One set went to the England colleagues that he had saying he'd gone into the hospital for a tumor removal. He'd had a rough childhood. This is all from his brother, Jake. The next day, a different email is sent in a group to the US acquaintances talking about this tumor in his spine that he's having removed. If you caught that, (laughs) it's different. The colleagues show sympathy again, send books to him. Oh my God. This Jake person who is his brother and a thing that the reporter picked up on wrote email, but the way he did it in writing the word email, he put E and then a dot instead of a hyphen for the word email. But then in a follow-up to this Jake email, Dan Mallory, the guy 
wrote, thank you for your email to my brother, but put email in the same way with a dot in the middle. So it's like, oh, let it go. Jake is his brother, but Dan's writing both the email and the response as him. I thought you were a genius. (laughs) So Jake is a real brother. The week he was supposedly by Dan's side during the surgery, there are photos of him for pre-wedding photographs of Jake and his wife, which could happen in the same week, but again, it's suspect. More emails about surgeries and treatments come from Jake to both sets. Again, all two different emails to two different groups of people saying the tumors have been removed, but Jake is using Britishisms in the emails. There's a continued cycle of this where he comes back, more setbacks, relapses, praising himself, or Jake praising him, saying he had been working with abused children at the hospital where he was being treated at. Came back to work in the spring. Nothing was different. No lost weight, hair, good as ever. So you think lying is writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the effect of this on people for the for the job the thing about the email stuff jake it wasn't like he was requesting money it's not a scam per se it's almost a performance art was what somebody said it's like what can i get at yeah it it, it definitely a performance art it absolutely is an act you know he wasn't trying Uh, to con all of his people it's like a grift like what can i get out of you what can i make you do what are you willing to get up give up it's very yeah but again he's doing the work the publishing work. He's getting thriller writers selling multi-million dollar deals on these authors. One of the writers that he gets on for the publishing house in 2015, her name is Sophie Hanna, and she was doing a continuation of Agatha Christie novels. In her second novel, there is a character who tells everyone he's terminally ill and he's murdered and they find out his kidneys were healthy, like he wasn't telling the truth about that. And One of the friends of this person said that he'd become friends with him at Oxford and doubted the prognosis of this kidney problem. And someone claiming to be his brother had confirmed the disease, but the brother was actually him wearing a disguise. I mean, just sketches it out in real life first. Yeah. Well, well, this is this other author. This is Sophie (laughs) Hanna, who has worked worked with him. Oh, God. Who put put this into a story. I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But even more crazy that this other person has put in all these details. Yeah. And the brother who is wearing a disguise in, in her novel, the name is Blake. She refused to comment for this journalist in this article, except to say, she said, oh, yes, there are some obvious parallels about rumors of him in the, in the industry and my book. Yeah. So the origin for the woman in the window, here we come to this actual part. Yeah. The myth behind it is thin. Like I said, oh, he was watching Rear Window and got interested in it and then whatever things right. he made up. But from his mouth, Into the genre. yeah, the genre. this is stuff that he said. He said, before Gone Girl, there had been no branding for this. Now there's a commercial opportunity, business-like in his things. Mm-hmm. He said he favored AJ Finn, the pseudonym, for its legibility on a small screen at reduced pixelation. Like there's no <laughs> artistry to that. Cool. And he came up with Anna Fox, the main character's name, after something easy to pronounce in many languages was his justification for that. Mm-hmm. The reporter says it seems like Hollywood loved it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the book I read it. You know, it's breeze through. It's a hundred very short chapters. It's a trope in this kind of thing where it's like boom, boom, boom. Next thing, next thing, next thing. Yeah, yeah. The reporter said it feels like a thriller, excited about getting away with writing a thriller, like he conned the thriller literary world. 
And the that entire to, time I've been bit. sitting here thinking about how in the movie, the reveal is the kid kind of getting off at the end of like, ha ha ha, you didn't know it's me the whole time. You thought it was my dad. Nobody will ever know. You you know, yeah. as I, like as I grow into this great serial killer, I'm a genius. So I've been sitting here this whole time, like <laughs> thinking like, oh, my God, he's like wrote him. He's like wrote himself into this thing. Which is, we uh, always say how he, the trick, you know, I got you. Yeah. I got you. <laughs> so like, this is, this is bizarre. This is so amazing. Yeah. This is sad. This is horrific. Uh, yeah. Uh, God. So there's a, there's a conclusion to this, which the reporter was able to talk to his father. And mm. the father said, yes. Here we go. His mom did have cancer. Dan did not, you know, the whole tumor in his brain or in his spine. His parents were apart for two years, but they didn't file for divorce or anything, and they came back together. And he said Dan did go through a tough time with that, but not so much as to say he was the product of a single parent household. And then Gosh. Pamela, his mom, showed up, and he wanted a comment, and she said, we're not doing that, thank you. And Dan Mallory, AJ Finn, has been silent since 2018, since the book came out in the press tour and all around wow. the world and all of that stuff. After all this oh broke gosh. from The New Yorker in 2019, when the journalists mm -hmm. had been doing all this work, Dan Mallory said that in 2015, shortly before he started writing Woman in the Window, he had been given a diagnosis of bipolar 2 disorder and oh, really? said he'd sought treatment for it in electric shocks and ketamine. And he said that his deception comes from the bipolar spectrum disorder. This is sort of the gray, murky area of... Yeah how you feel about it, how you don't feel about it, because you know he's championing his courage in the face of a mental illness. Clearly, he has problems. And in the case of bipolar disorder, which obviously I can't speak to at all in terms of this specific thing, but there were a few psychiatrist takes on the matter. And a psychiatrist that was interviewed said that one cannot attribute to that diagnosis delusions, amnesia, chronic lying for secondary gain. Like it doesn't explain right. <laughs> organized untruths, morality, yeah. yeah, maintained over time. So maybe you know he needs sympathy because there are clearly some other mental health situations going on. For sure, if there's psychopathy or you know sociopathy or whatever, there was an agent who was a who's a close family member is also bipolar who worked with him and said, "I've seen the ravages and suffering of the disease." And if Mallory's deceit is the product of bipolar episodes, they have been singularly advantageous to his career, unlike any other bipolar person. Lashing out and getting a movie deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Getting paid <laughs> millions of dollars. Like if he's stable and lucid enough to produce a best-selling novel, then he should apologize to the people he lied to and the people he hurt. So right. his public relations firm released a statement and said that he did state, implied, or allow others to believe that he was afflicted with a physical problem instead of a psychological one cancer. Mm. And then he says, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm sorry to have taken or be seen to have taken advantage of anyone else's goodwill. So it's a, you know, it seems like, oh, it's a blanket thing by the people representing him. Like the journalists going mm. back, none of these people knew that a lot of this stuff was. So where's all the cameras now? Come on. Come on. Right. Say so it, it, it is, on. it Say is it a, camera, man. it is a sticky situation because the whole journalist, you know, the article, the New Yorker stuff, it does paint this grim picture of this problematic person. And it's like, well, he is problematic, but also there is some mental health stuff going on. He does have bipolar disorder, whether that also contributes, you know, he has serious bouts of depression, all of that stuff. 
And and then it's so fascinating that all of that gets put into this novel about somebody who is struggling with hallucinations, the thriller, you know, all yeah. the stuff he's he's put into his own life in a way, in a bad way. Right. <laughs> this is this is amazing. I'm trying to think of another comparable. It's like now I instantly want to know about more about like million little pieces in the Oprah debacle. Yeah, that, that was guy, a memoir, you know? which was not yeah. true, which is why he got right. guff. That's what's so fascinating is like people loved the book because it was a fast paced well, thriller. Like he knew how to play the market in the same way, potentially pending sure. his personal struggles with mental illness. And that's kind of the what I wanted to sort of say is like, okay. That's the problem in a way is him saying, oh, well, I have this mental illness. It's like that doesn't do any good for people that have mental illness right? to say that because in a way- Right. It's like, this was in the pursuit of, of you know, for less of, lack of a better term, fame. Uh, this became public. And when it becomes public, I, that's where my, my empathy for the, you know, his battle with mental illness starts to wane. Yes, I have empathy for the, the his mental illness, but to a certain extent where the like the doctors are saying it doesn't make up for, you know, continue you know, manipulating people for <laughs> for your gain. Like it doesn't once you and especially when you make this a public thing for when you do this in pursuit of notoriety yeah. uh, is bizarre. So when you make it public and uh, it, it, you're crossing a line now, now it you don't own this narrative. Now you have submitted it to the zeitgeist. And I, it's that's an animal and it's dangerous. And I think uh, he poked it and he's receded. Huh? I don't know. I don't know. This is bizarre. This is really, really fascinating because it's there's a lot of sides to this. And it's not like, well, he's, you know, like a psychopath garbage. But, you know, he's not a murderer. Yeah. You yeah. know, so, so there's there's absolutely empathy for him. One hundred percent. Mental illness. One hundred percent. But there's more to this than that and there was or at least more, i think yeah yeah, yeah. There, there's there's more about the notoriety uh and the career that makes this far more insidious than uh, it, i don't it doesn't help the the mental illness case it's like like, like uh god yeah like, uh, god <laughs> what a mess. like yeah. we, wait what <laughs> yeah so i think uh, that that comes back to kind of talking about like People liked the book because it was a classic pulling off of all the tropes, maybe even taking from literally a book that was published two years before, like he right. knows the market, all of that stuff. And then the movie comes out and it's like, well, audiences don't like it. They're missing the zhuzh of what this is. And it's like, I don't know if there's some karmic relation to that. You know, where is the soul of the original thing? Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. yeah. I feel like that has some to something to it because I'm more into the... The hoodoo, the voodoo of the creative process. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, oh yeah, this this was not made, I don't think, in good faith with good aims from maybe it was made from his soul. I don't know, you know, like, but it doesn't seem that way looking I don't at everything think you do, before. I don't know. And uh, yeah, I, I'm 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 siding, I'm leaning that way too. Um this is this is bizarre. But for the subject matter to be wrapped up in it in it is where mm -hmm. it gets so meta, my head explodes. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> here's like, the here's so, the uh, This is why this is why I, I this is you know, we put this out there as a topic of like, oh, this could be interesting. The the conversation is crazy. I, I basically just pitched it to you as that of being like, Man, people are blown up about this. Let's just get in on the conversation. This has gone a direction. <laughs> I just you just can't talk about twists yeah. ever. Yeah. I, yeah, for real. And for it, for this ep, this is meta. This is bizarre. <laughs> this is 
Well, here, let me let me let me blow your brain one more time. So Please. the the ending because we've spoken about lies and deception, ending on a little bit of truth. Again, this is based on this New Yorker article that I read, where this journalist exposed all this stuff. Netflix bought the rights to that article, and. What? Jake Gyllenhaal is slated to play Mallory. Yes. No, no, no way. No way. No way. I've been sitting here going like earlier. I was like, oh, they hired the guy. You know, I was just like thinking. I was like, oh, so they hired the, he is the guy in Nightcrawler, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, this is perfect. That you, you, they're, oh, oh, this is amazing. Jake Gyllenhaal is going to play him. (laughs) And again, incredible Taylor in a funny kind of take on it. You know, we'll see how it goes, but like, Amy Adams, like we started from the top, like pining for an Oscar. But in a way, it's like Jake Gyllenhaal is another person who has never won any Oscars. That it, yeah. And this time, yeah, yeah. And this is something they, night, he should have. He probably yeah. should have won it for Nightcrawler right. too. Uh, but this is know, something oh that God. is uh, that is based on truth. Like this guy's actual this life. Is amazing. Yeah. So maybe he'll this win an Oscar amazing. for that. You know, it's like maybe, it all comes around. I am so pumped. Oh my God. You you like reached right into my brain. And, and... <laughs> It's like a fantasy. This is amazing. Ah, Wild. Oh, my God. Absolutely wild. (laughs) Thank you, Taylor. Thank you so, so much. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Please, if you haven't already, make sure you follow us, subscribe, and reach out to us. For for, for, for Pete's sake, (laughs) reach out to us. Talk to us. Let us know what you're reading. Let us know what you're watching. What what show are you interested in? What new show has got you hot? What book has come out and there's nobody know about that you don't have anybody to talk to about? Let us know. <laughs> At Illiterate Pod on Instagram is where you can reach us. Send us a message and we'll talk to you all next week. Yeah.